Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are talking to the writer John Mualam from the New York Times Magazine. His latest book of essays is called Serious Face, and it explains, among other things, uh, why you might not want to text your friend a picture of a Spanish bullfighter that you saw somewhere and tell them that this person looks exactly like them. Also, how poetry can save your life if you are injured in rural Alaska. Plus, we're going to meet the chef and bar owner, Jenny Wynn, behind the world's first sports bar that plays only women's sports on the televisions. It's called the Sports Bra, which is an amazing name. And also happens to be right here in Portland, Oregon. Then we're going to hear some music from friend of the show, the one, the only, Laura Veers. So that is the plan. We have an amazing show in store this week. Don't go anywhere. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It is going very well. It's nice to see you. You are somewhere in America at a writing event, right? That's right. I'm at a kind of a writer's camp in Vermont. Are you feeling ready for this week's station location identification examination? I really hope it's a city in Vermont. It is not. I'm going to give you that one hint. Ah, okay. Okay. So now there's 49 other states it could be from. This, of course, is the part of the show where I quiz Elena on a station in America where Livewire is on the radio. You try to guess where I'm talking about. So this place is known as the toilet paper capital of the world. <laughs> the company that would eventually become Quilted Northern invented the first toilet paper here that would come without the risk of splinters. <laughs> so the takeaway from this is early production methods of toilet paper sometimes left wood splinters in the rolls. Okay, well, Northern... So it's somewhere in the north, and then toilet paper, there's got to be a lot of trees around, so... Let me give you another clue. I, I like how you're thinking, but this might help, okay. too. The French explorer, Jean Nicole, originally named this spot, and apologies for my French, La Baie des Ponts, or the Bay of Stinking Waters, because of the smell of the algae, but they <gasps> later renamed it in favor of the color of the algae. Is it Green Bay, Wisconsin? It is exactly Green Bay, Wisconsin, <laughs> where we're on the radio on WHID Radio. <laughs> I'm really glad they changed the name. 
Yeah, yeah, good good rebranding there. I have been to Green Bay, and it is a wonderful place, and I'm glad it's not called the Bay of Stinking Waters anymore. All right. <laughs> Shout out to everyone listening in Green Bay. Uh, should we uh, get to the show, Elena? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's... This week, writer John Mualem. Every time I see a new dentist, it's the same. They get like archaeologists before a dig, eager to know what sort of ruined structure is hidden under there. Chef and women's sports advocate Jenny Wynn. Here we are, we're a space that is dedicated to showing women's sports, right? But there isn't any possible way that we're able to show 24-7 content. With music from Laura Veers and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone tuning in all over the country, including in Green Bay, Wisconsin. We have a great show in store for y'all this week. Of course, uh, we asked the Livewire listeners a question for this week's show. That question was, describe your dream business. This is because one of our guests, Jenny Wynn, kind of went out and made her dream business, this place called the Sports Bra in Portland you're going to hear about. We're going to hear those listener responses coming up. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is, in fact despite how many of us feel a lot of the time. Some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news that you heard this week? Well, I have some Pride Month news, but as any good working drag queen will tell you, Pride now kind of stretches from May to August because there are so many different festivals. I love the world of drag. I just love it. And, you know, unfortunately, one thing I don't love is that lately there's been this trend of people showing up to protest the more family-friendly drag events like Hmm. drag story time because, of course, there's lots of different types of drag. There's nightclub drag, but then there's, like, drag story time at libraries where somebody dresses up and reads to kids. And that's what happened when there was a planned drag event in Billings, Montana at Zoo, Montana, And a senator and a representative let people know that they weren't a fan of it. And Mm. 50 people showed up to protest it. But this is the best news we've heard all week. Okay. This isn't the worst news we've heard all week. The best news is that 700 people showed up to the Drag Queen Story Hour at the zoo in support of one queen named Anita Shadow, who (laughs) read a book about wildlife, of course, because it's a zoo, and read a book about people coming from diverse identities. She looked amazing. She looked kind of like Sally, the farmer's daughter, with this great yellow Dolly Parton wig, and there's all these kids in front of her enjoying the story time. And, you know, I think the story hour proved that there were over 10 times as much support than there is detraction, which gives me quite a big uh, jolt of hope. That's a good reminder because the news has been so dark of late and it's very easy to feel hopeless and overwhelmed. And then you hear Mm -hmm. something like this where you're like, no, there's 10 times the people in the world who actually like nice things happening. Yeah. Like kids having stories read to them. Then there are these people that make a scene. So that's actually a nice little reminder here. That's right. I also have a best news story I saw, Elena, that involves a queen the Queen of Walt Whitman Boulevard, Ooh. also known as Claire Bauman. Claire Bauman retired from crossing guard duty in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, recently after almost 60 years 
of helping <gasps> students from Horace Mann Elementary School cross the same street. Oh, cool. Yeah, they call her the Queen of Walt Whitman Boulevard. She's 94 years old, by the way. <laughs> She's just been out there taking kids safely across the street, which this story jumped out to me because, you know, my Aunt Kathy in Philadelphia was a crossing guard for decades. And oh, wow. I, I didn't realize this until I had an aunt in the crossing guard industry, <laughs> but they really bond with the kids oh, and the yeah. parents of the kids. I mean, of course, it's an awesome responsibility to help keep these kids safe. Well, Claire... Bauman has been out there for almost 60 years. They brought her to her last shift in a limo that some of her favorite students were in the limo with her. It was a whole thing. They celebrated. The local media showed up. Her um, daughter-in-law said she was advocating for Claire to retire because she felt like she couldn't retire, the daughter-in-law, until Claire retired. And she didn't want to work, she said, until she was 94. So she had to get Claire out of the crossing guard game. I was a crossing guard for exactly one shift in what? grade school. I was like a student crossing guard. And I wanted Great. to, I wanted the gig because at the end of the year, they would take all of the crossing guards for a day at the amusement park called Fun Forest in Seattle. Okay. I was out there on my crossing guard duty for exactly one shift. I got bored and I asked this person named Terry Wilfong to wear my crossing guard uniform and cover for me. And oh, no, Terry. I was immediately cut from the crossing guard team. I lasted, I lasted roughly six <laughs> decades less than Claire Bauman, the, uh, the queen of Walt Whitman Boulevard. But shout out to Claire. Uh, good job. Thank you for your service of getting the kids in Cherry Hill, New Jersey safely uh, to and from school. Anyway, that's the best news that I saw this week. All right, let's get our first guest on over to the show. Uh, he is a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine, and he was the person behind the surprisingly listenable podcast, The Walking Podcast, wherein he would just record himself walking around Bainbridge Island in Washington, where he lives. What we want to talk to him about, though, is his exceptional new book of essays. It's titled Serious Face. It covers everything from monk seals to the former skydiving entrepreneur who's been building his dream city in the desert of California, calling it the center of the world. John Wallam joined us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater back in May. Let's take a listen to that conversation. Hello, John. Hi. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. How have you been? I've been all right. Uh, this book, Serious Face, is just such an absolutely wonderful read. It's a collection of essays on a variety of different topics and, and things that you've reported on in your life over the years. Uh, one of the questions that you pose in the book is, why are we not better than we are? You said that's sort of a question that you've been trying to answer in one way or another throughout your career. What do you exactly mean by that question, why are we not better than we are? What are you trying to explore? Yeah, well, first I'll say, so I, I kind of borrowed, well, I, I didn't borrow it, I stole that line from a, <laughs> from a poem by a poet named Eric Trethway, which I'd read um, like 25 years ago and just kind of still is rattling around my head. And yeah, I think that's when I had to sit down and think about, you know, what tied a lot of these pieces together, it did seem like... Um, that was a question they were all driving at in one way or another. Not necessarily like in a moral sense, like why are we not, you know, perfect angels all the time, but just even like as functional machinery, like why is it that 
I was supposed to check that my water heater wasn't leaking before I left the house this morning, and I didn't do it, you know, and why... Did that really happen to that you really, That's a true story. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I just think that we're, in some ways, it's like when you, when you really can step back, you see, like, a lot of us are kind of bumbling around and, and more inept than I think we generally realize, and that, w but the problem is, is, like, we can imagine better, you know, better ways of doing things. We can imagine sort of the perfect way to do everything, and so a lot of the stories in the book are, are about this kind of breakdown between theory and practice when people are really trying to accomplish something great and kind of just can't, just can't get there. Mm. One of the early essays in the book involves you and some buddies heading out to Alaska for a kayaking trip and things um, did not sort of play out the way you were expecting. What happened? Yeah, we were kayaking in Glacier Bay, which is a really remote part of Alaska, and uh, had been rained in one day. Uh, weren't able to, to get in the boats that day because the water was too rough, so we decided to just kind of hike around after the rain had died down. And a very large tree uh, fell over uh, and landed on my friend and knocked him into a river. Um, that's the short version of the story. But I mean, uh, <laughs> the, what makes it so uh, compelling is, first of all, your friend was, it turns out, injured very sort of gravely. And you're also in the absolute middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And also, like, no offense, but one of your friends was sort of an outdoor guide, but the other two... Exactly. My, my friend, whose name is also John, was the one who was injured, and he was the one who had all the experience and, and know-how. Um, you know, we were his guests. I mean, I should say, he's, he's okay. We got, we got him out. Yeah. And the, the Coast Guard uh, came through a kind of freak series of, of coincidences. We were able to get word to the Coast Guard. But yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example of this, of this question, is like, you know, somehow everything worked out, but it was not because we were you know, perfectly capable, uh, you know, competent people. It was, it was a lot of luck. Um, it could have easily gone different ways, and it was just sort of like repeatedly kind of just like trying to not let the current emergency, uh, you know, take us all under, and then getting to the next emergency. You turned, as is so often the case in emergencies, to poetry? Yeah. Yes. Your first aid kit was poetry. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You know, <laughs> you really want me in a crisis because, yeah, um, yeah there, was, there was a moment in this, in this whole adventure where, where my one friend had, had gone back to our campsite to try to get a hold of this radio and, and reach some help. And I and was left alone with my friend, my friend John, who was just laying on the forest floor, completely immobilized. And, you know, I had this sense, like probably mostly from movies, you know, you're supposed to talk to the person who's kind of going in and out of consciousness and just kind of try to pull them back. But, you know, I didn't have a script for that, right? Like <laughs> yeah. you actually need to say things. And, and I initially started kind of like bumbling around. And I, at one point I apologized because I, th I thought I'd overstayed my welcome with his family at Christmas one year. I was sort of like <laughs> cleansing myself of my, you know, and I realized, oh, this is messed up. Like I don't want him to think I think he's dying, right? So... <laughs> Uh, and that's also not how that's supposed to work. It's the person who's dying who's supposed to get some stuff off their right. chest, not the other person yeah. who's basically fine. You know, that's a really, that's a really good point. Um, I'm going to add that to the list of things that did not go right. Uh, that, that, um, but yeah, so um, I had these uh, professors in college who had insisted and, and required us to, to uh, memorize poems. And uh, so, yeah, so I, the first one I reached for was The Shampoo by Elizabeth Bishop, which is a, 
a love poem she wrote for another woman about washing her hair. Uh -huh. And so there I was uh, reciting that to John. Um, and, you know, we went, I went through some more hits, some Robert Frost, some Auden. And uh, I, I didn't realize at the, at the time I would not have been able to tell you it was that long. I thought it was maybe a matter of minutes. It turns out for an hour and a half, John and I were there uh, before anyone came back to, uh, to help us. And uh, I think I was doing poetry most of that time. And, and he told you later that that, that actually was really great for him in that moment. It was really helpful. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was another really surprising thing about being able to talk this out all this time later, was I, I had this image of myself as, um, you know, pretty helpless. And, um, and yeah, and, and I think John was really grateful for it. He, he told me that if he had to almost die on, a, on the floor <laughs> of a forest, he'd love for me to be there next time, <laughs> too. So, yeah. Uh, this is Livewire Radio. We're talking to John Mualam. His uh, new book of essays is Serious Face. We've got to take a quick break, but we'll be back with much more in a moment from the Alberta Rose Theatre. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of a, probably a 501c3 they don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping and it's really better that way yes. point is we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members and we would love it if you could join us in that right now plus there are all kinds of sweet perks including uh special discounted tickets to live recordings on-air shout outs exclusive content uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels it does not matter how much you are giving every month to live where it just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Hey, welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland, Oregon. We're talking to John Mualam. His uh, new book of essays is serious face. Um, the essay that you've written about your face and the face of a, um, a famous Spanish bullfighter was actually in the New York Times Magazine. I'm sure a lot of people here got a chance to read it. It's a really incredible piece of writing, and I was wondering, could you maybe read a little bit from uh, that particular essay in the book? Sure, yeah. Now, friends of yours started sending you <laughs> photographs of this particular bullfighter that they would see photos of in Spain. And what was his name? His name was Manolete. 
um, although I didn't know that at the time. It was, it was two friends who had been at a restaurant and seen this photograph on the wall and sent it to me immediately because um, the guy looked just like me. Um, <laughs> they were really freaked out by it, as, I, as was I. I saw it too. You don't often normally see this about yourself, but I couldn't deny it. He looked exactly like me. Um, and then so you, you wrote about it, and um, maybe we could hear some of that. Sure. Yeah, well, so I'll just say that um, my face is very crooked for the listening public at home. My, my jaw is kind of going in, in one way, my nose in the other. Uh, I say in, in the piece, it's, so it's, I'm never kind of really looking straight at you, no matter which, which way I tilt my head. I think it's beguiling for the well, record. Well, thank you. This is all just a trick to get people to tell me I'm handsome. Yeah. Uh, all right. So this is a part of the piece where I stop talking about um, the bullfighter's face and start talking about my face instead. No one appreciates my face with more uncontrollable gusto than dentists, though. More than once... I've endured one calling in a colleague from the other room to come have a look. They peer at my x-rays with giddy concentration, as though pressing open a fresh book of Sudoku, and sometimes ask me to get out of the chair and stand against the wall so they can get a few shots with the regular camera, too. I was in my mid-30s before I realized that these demoralizing portrait sessions weren't a standard part of a dental exam. Every time I see a new dentist, it's the same. They get like archaeologists before a dig, eager to know what sort of ruined structure is hidden under there, imagining all the physical dysfunction and pain that I must be living with, and the many diagnostic tools and specialists that could be gathered behind the project of setting it all right. They aren't wrong. My jaw is so misshapen that I can feel it wriggle out of joint whenever I open wide enough for a hamburger or a yawn and then bonk back into place. And the gums on the left side of my mouth are wearing away at a distressing rate since those teeth apparently clamp together long before the ones on the other side can connect and therefore do most of the chewing. But my only serious complaint has been the headaches, a small genus of pains that have racked me periodically since childhood. There's a particular kind of dull headache that sprouts under and above my eyes like mold. There's one that presses and holds its weight against my face from inside, like a tantruming toddler squatting against her bedroom door to keep the world out. There's the throbbing one that hangs around diffusely for hours and only produces pain when I focus on it, like a pang of guilt. Maybe none of this makes sense. These headaches molder at the periphery of language in a nonsensical cloud of synesthesia and memories, purple pain, newsprint-colored pain, pain that has the turgid heft of Greek yogurt or smells like the inside of an umbrella, pain that funnels me back to one gloomy Sunday afternoon from my childhood, splayed on the carpet, watching Steve Martin in The Jerk on Channel 11. Does anyone truly comprehend the pressures roiling inside their own head? As far as I understand it, the source of my headaches is probably my sinuses, which over time were narrowed and crushed like a plastic straw as the bones of my jaw and nose grew into them, out of alignment. But I can't say for sure. At a couple of different points in my life, I've gotten motivated to better diagnose and even fix these problems, shuttling around for exploratory scans and consultations. Doctors have proposed plastic surgery to straighten out my nose, or surgically breaking my jaw and resetting it. After walking me through the complete cartography of the human face in an anatomy textbook, one postulated that perhaps my flattened sinuses could be bored open wider with lasers. I actually didn't even know that's a real thing. When he said it to me, I didn't know until the other day that that's a real thing. Really? I yeah. I thought he was just, I, I was like, well, what's with this guy? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> But to be honest, I've never earnestly considered pursuing any of these doctors' recommendations, just nodded along inertly with my misshapen face as they spoke. Somehow, every intervention has felt so pointlessly ambitious, so laborious, so dramatic. For better or worse, these problems feel normal to me. And the truth is, I started to identify so deeply with the peculiarities of my face 
that the idea of correcting those imperfections eventually became unthinkable. Looking in the mirror, I try to imagine every part of me pointing flawlessly forward and wonder, who would I be then? When I was younger, I worried I was ugly, but by the time I turned 30, there was even a measure of perverse vanity involved. <laughs> I'd come to appreciate my face so much that I was willing to live with the pain of having it attached to my head. <laughs> and that's why reading the first Manalete biography on my kitchen floor the night it arrived, it didn't upset me to learn how allegedly grotesque my doppelganger was and how unrepentantly and universally this face we shared was ridiculed. I was able to brush it off, and even wrest some wry amusement from the discovery. And that felt good, good to feel unthreatened, good to recognize that a kind of genuine acceptance and equanimity had apparently been growing inside me from an odd angle all those years. In short, that night, I felt myself freely loving who I am and was proud. But then I read the rest of the Manalete biography. <laughs> it's John Mualem here on Livewire. The, the story of, of, of Manaletti and, and his life is fascinating as detailed in this book. Also, you point out that science right now is that really our sinuses serve no functional purpose other than ruining our lives. <laughs> if yeah. we have sinus problems. Yeah, I kind of, I got really curious about sinuses. Like, what are these things? Why do we have essentially these empty spaces in our heads? Um, and yeah, as it was explained to me, it's, it's this sort of case of... Um, you know, not everything in evolution does a job, right? Some things just happen, and then they're not hurting anyone, they kind of stick around. And so we've got these things uh, in our head just clogging up with snot all the time, and there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> That's what I think is so cool about this book, though, is because it seems like you got the photos of Manolete years and years ago, but the essay itself takes us to all of these different places. Like, I don't know, I'm assuming you didn't think you were going to be spending this much time in the, I can't say the annals of sinus studies, maybe the sinuses of <laughs> the sinus, sinus studies. Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, the, well, the first thing was I got this photo. I mean, I think it was, it was almost 15 years ago now, and I got this photo, and I just had this photo on my phone, and I'd show it to people, and I'd be like, check this out, and everyone would laugh. And it took me years before I even thought, like, well, who is this guy? <laughs> maybe I should figure out who this guy is. And so, yeah, I say the book, I, I finally got this biography of him, and, uh, and it arrives, and I rip it open. I'm sitting on my floor. And uh, the first sentence I read, literally, I open up the book, I crack the spine, and I look, and the first sentence I read, it says, he has a face that's as dreary as a third-class funeral on a rainy day. <laughs> and, uh, and what I realized with that is this, this bullfighter, who's my exact twin, apparently, was just renowned for his ugliness. Like, people just could not stop talking about how ugly he was. Um, even people who really loved him, they would always, always tack on some cheap shot about, you know, call him old big nose or something. Um, so so yeah, then I had to sit with that for a few years. Years. Yeah, um, and you know, then I was like, "Well, how can I write about sinuses?" No, I'm right. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, you're right. I think like in in many ways, it's like you know, even though I think having done this kind of work for so long, I kind of go through the world like thinking that everything is potentially a story. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a story like right then and there. You know, there's a mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff sloshing around that that mm -hmm. kind of has to wait for the right moment. I'm wondering how it feels to you to have the reaction that this piece has had. Lots of people have been talking about it, uh, not the least of them. Jamie Lee Curtis, apparently, is now your new like PR person. What is going on? <laughs> what? what is happening with you and Jamie Lee Curtis? Uh, JLC. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I just I got a really nice uh, note from Jamie Lee Curtis, and um, 
you know, it's fun when uh, she's celebrities, you know? <laughs> but now... <laughs> um, but yeah, so she's been uh, kind of championing uh, the book <laughs> online, uh, which I'm very grateful for. And um, it's... Uh, I don't know what more to say, but thank well, you, Jamie I, Lee Curtis. Yeah. I guess, I guess the nature of my question is, you know, you have written a lot of really incredible essays, but they're often about other people. A guy who decides to build a town that he's calling the center of the universe in Felicity, California, named for his wife. When you write a piece like that and people say, hey, that was a great piece, that feels good. But when you write a piece that's literally about the inside of who you are and they say, this really moved me, that must be an intense experience. Yeah, it's really, it's really special. I mean, I think it's like, I don't really understand how to, how to interact. I mean, it's, it's nice when I get a, an email, like I've gotten some really beautiful emails from people and, and that's always great. And yet I know better than to like kind of go actively seek the feedback to the piece online. Uh -huh. mm. When I finally saw Manolete's picture, I thought he was a quite handsome, kind of got a little Vincent Gallo type yeah. situation going, yeah. which as your twin, by extension, means you're also a handsome person, John mm. Mualem. Yeah, well, thank you. And more importantly, my phone and computer autocorrect many words now to Mualem. Same, what? So Same. I don't know how you did that. <laughs> Like, that's, that's the mark of success. That's Jamie Lee Curtis. That's the JLC book. Yeah, that is, that's the JLC 100%. difference. 100%. Yeah, right there. John yeah. Mualem, everyone. The book is Serious Face. That was John Mualem right here on Livewire, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater. His latest book, Serious Face, is available now. Special thanks this episode to Elena Lake of Portland, Oregon, and Heidi Spafford of Vancouver, Washington. Elena and Heidi are part of the Livewire member community and generously support us with a donation each month. And we are very thankful for that support. It's genuinely what allows us to keep this whole thing going. So a hearty shout out and thank you to Elena and Heidi for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire, as we do each week on the show. We have asked the Livewire listeners a question. This week, in honor of Jenny Wynn, who we're going to talk to about starting her dream business, the sports bra, we asked the listeners, describe your dream business. Elena has been collecting up those responses. What do you? I see you're already laughing. <laughs> what are the people saying? Three words from Mark in terms of Mark's dream business. Hot tub testing. Hot tub testing. <laughs> I mean, let's think this through, Mark. Like, what do you you go to people's houses and get in their hot tubs? Is that what we're talking about? Or are you in like a, a quality control like warehouse? Right. And then the other problem is that, sure, if you're in the Goldilocks zone, that's great. If you only get to test hot tubs at the right temperature. But, you know, they also have to figure out what's too cold and what's too hot. Yeah. You know what they have here in Portland and I'm sure some other places too now are these hot tub boats you can rent? And they go up and down the Willamette, and you are sitting in a little motorboat in a hot tub. The interior of the boat is itself a hot tub. Sign me up. I'm ready. That is the height of decadence. <laughs> All right. What's, a, what's another dream business that one of our listeners would like to start? Oh, this is a pretty good idea from Erica. Erica says, I want to start a business where people upload pictures and stats on their dogs. And then when I feel like having a companion on my nature walk, I will select and borrow their dog for the afternoon. 
<laughs> that is a great idea. Right? You could be like, oh, I really need like a, a long walk, pick a Rhodesian Ridgeback. If you just kind of <laughs> want to take like a small stroll, maybe like a Cavalier King Charles. Or, <laughs> I don't know. Right. As a dog owner throughout my life, of course, I loved walking my dog, but there are also the days when you just don't have time for it. Maybe you're mm-hmm. not feeling well, you're too busy, and it would be a huge favor if somebody wanted to take your dog, run them through the woods for 10 miles, and bring them back all tired and content. I've told you about the dog bus that used to go around Corvallis and pick up dogs and take them to the woods and exhaust them and then bring them home. And the dogs would jump on the school bus and they all knew their assigned seats. That is adorable. But that's a business. This sounds more like a volunteer organization, which would be even better because you don't even have to pay for this, it sounds like. Somebody who wants to walk a dog and somebody who has a dog that needs walking. It's like a dating service. Yeah, exactly. It's like Hinge, but for pet owners. All right. One more dream business idea from our listeners. Okay. Here's one from Maggie. Maggie wants to open a soup restaurant with rotating daily soups and a ton of side options, garlic bread, salads, and fries. It sort of sounds like the soup counter from Seinfeld, Mm -hmm. only people are nice and maybe you can sit down. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you what, I eat a lot of soup, even in the summertime, and I don't think there are enough dedicated soup restaurants. Yeah. If Maggie was able to start this business, I would be the first customer. What do you call it? Soup superstars? Soup super bad at coming up with restaurant names. That would super. be my contribution to it. I always wanted to start a restaurant that would also you could eat in a recliner mm. and then when you were done, you could recline and take a nap. Because mm. I feel like a lot of times if I'm having if I have a big bunch of food, all that blood goes to your stomach to help digest, you get sleepy. Be nice if there was a restaurant that also allowed for napping. Like they built that into the system. The immediate nap that follows. Yeah. And you just, just like, peace I just out. I like 10, 15 minutes to sleep this off, then I'm ready to go. No, I will not leave this Denny's. I am napping. <laughs> All right. Thank you to everyone who wrote in with responses to our listener question. We've got an audience question for next week's show, which we're going to reveal at the end of today's program. So stick around for that. Speaking of dream businesses, by the way, our next guest had the courage to completely defy her parents' advice during the pandemic when they said, Do not open a sports bar in Portland, Oregon, in the midst of a pandemic. But this was not just any sports bar. This was the Sports Bra, the world's first sports bar that we know of anyway, that exclusively shows women's sports on the televisions. It's already been a huge success. They raised over $100,000 on Kickstarter to get it going. And they've gotten all kinds of news coverage from all over the world. And in the process, they've been able to draw attention to the gender inequality in terms of which sports are getting televised. Her name is Jenny Wynn, and she joined us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater back in May. Take a listen to this. Jenny, thank you for making some time in your schedule to to be here. I live not far from the sports bra, and I drive down Broadway every day, and there is a line out the door, and I just think, I think this has been too successful. You might need to shut it down. It just, <laughs> it seems like a lot of work. I mean, that place is yeah. a hit. Yeah, it's, it's been pretty incredible. I'm overwhelmed, really. <laughs> Let's kind of go back to, for the four people in America who haven't heard the story yet, <laughs> of the sports bra. It's an amazing one. So you and um, some, some friends and, and your partner were out watching 
uh, an NCAA uh, finals game in mm -hmm. the, the women's bracket, and it was a great game. It came down to the wire, but there mm -hmm. was one thing going on, and your experience was that the audio wasn't on in the bar because this was women's sports. Right, that's correct. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's a really common experience for anyone who's a women's sports fan that goes out to go try to watch it on TV. And it's like, okay, you go to this space and there's a million TVs on, none of them have your game on. Uh, so it was the same in this particular case. And when you think about uh, the NCAA finals, like to me, I mean, basketball's my jam. Yes. So it's like the biggest game of the year. And so we roll in and there's like a dozen of us and uh, the game's not on. Something else is on the main screen. And so we just asked to have the, one of the TVs changed and they kind of put us over into the side and it's like a small TV in the corner and we, you know, are, are kind of used to that. So we watch the game, we have a great time um, and it ends up being like one of the best games ever. And uh, afterwards, you know, we we're just out in the parking lot milling around talking about how great a game it was. And then somebody was just like, yeah, it would have been better if the sound had been on. Yeah. You know? Right. Uh, and it was at that moment where it just clicked where I was like, I didn't even notice. So had I gotten so used to, you know, watching women's sports in like a compromised way. Yeah. Um, and that's what that's what stood out to me. So then yeah. um, you and your friends started referring to this mythical sports bar that you were going to start someday. That was like where none of the lame sort of like, you know, sexist, gendered norms of the regular sports bar existed, right? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't so blatant as that. It was, it was more of a place for us to just go and hang out and watch games I and see. feel comfortable, you know, like yeah. for my friends and I. And it was never going to be a place that I was planning on opening up. It was just like this fictional place that was just like, oh, you know, like this game would be on at the sports bra or... <laughs> At the sports bra, we'd have a vegan version of this. You know, like, just random stuff. Yeah, it was like, it was this, like, idealized version where everything was great. Yeah, the toilet paper would never run out. <laughs> and it sounds like you named it early. It was the sports bra, even when it was still just a figment of your imagination. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that, like, maybe a day or two days after that 2018 game, you know, it was just like the little seed was living in my head, and I was like, hmm, if there was a place, you know, what would it be called? What would be cool? And, uh, you know, the thing that kind of stuck out to me was that it's just a sports bar, and all you're doing is you're changing the channel, which is real simple, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you just take, like, sports bar, and you just change the, mm -hmm. change the letters, mm -hmm. and sports, sports bra. bra. Yeah. Right? You do have that trademarked, right? I do, yeah. Okay, good, because that is a billion-dollar idea. <laughs> the other thing, too, actually, Jenny, that I've, I've heard you say before is, the sports bra is not a quote-unquote women's sports bar. It's a sports bar that happens to show women's sports on the television. Why is that an important distinction to you? Oh, man. It's, I mean, I get it all the time. Are men allowed in there? And it's just like, uh, yeah, it's not a sports bar for women. Yeah. You know, it's a bar for women's sports. And so, like, statistically, a majority of women's sports fans are men. So I, the thing is, if you like sports, you don't care who's playing it. You just like sports. Yeah. Um, but what happens is that, you know, 96% of all sports that are on TV are men's sports. So that's what people identify with. And that's what they are cheering for most of the time. But, I mean, something that I didn't realize until I started looking into the story was that there are lots and lots and lots of, uh, of women's sports happening all the time. The issue is they're not being televised mm -hmm. or they're streaming somewhere. So it seems like a big part of your work, along with creating the menu and the cocktail <laughs> list and all the normal things about running a, a bar restaurant, sure. 
in addition to that, you've become this sort of like content merchant who's trying to actually get the stuff to put on those TVs, right? What has that been like? Absolutely. I really, like, if there's anybody out there that is into that, <laughs> uh, I really think that is somebody else's full-time job, is to find <laughs> women's content so that we can play it at the bra. Um, yeah, like, it's, it's really intense, you know, because... One interesting thing is that there are, you know, dozens and dozens of streaming services and they know that there are people out there who are interested in these women's sports and they want to access it. And so they're willing to pay, you know, $4.99 a month or whatever it is. But there's, there's so many. So even you have something as huge as the WNBA and it's playing on seven different channels. I mean, that's a huge league. And then you're talking about things like bowling or surfing or any of these smaller, like lesser known sports or whatever, mm -hmm. how are you gonna watch those? So is it that they're not even being uh, filmed right now and you're trying to get people to get out to do that or it's they're being filmed but you don't have the rights as a bar owner to show the stream? Like what are the mm -hmm. impediments? The second thing. Okay. So with streaming services, they pay very little money to get that content. And that's why you know it's $4.99 for me to watch it at home. Mm -hmm. But there's no way for a business to show it in commercial because those rights cost a lot more. But what has happened is people who have heard or the streaming services who have heard have reached out and they're like, you know, we can see the benefit in giving you access to this stuff because it's, it helps us to promote ourselves and to promote these leagues and these sports and you're drawing attention to that. And right. so you're helping to grow it. And so it's like a you know, scratch your back, scratch my back kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what we need, I think, to get yeah. it started. Yeah. We are talking to Jenny Wynn, the owner and founder of the Sports Bra here in Portland, which is a sports bar that exclusively shows uh, women's sports on the televisions. Now, when you and I talked, uh, I don't know, a month ago or so when you were opening the place, um, you said that during the times of, of day when maybe there wasn't any content involving women's sports, you were considering leaving the TVs off as a way of pointing out this kind of lack of coverage. Where, where have you landed on that now that you've been open a month? What mm -hmm. are you doing? Yeah, I mean, part of it is kind of tempering expectations. Hmm. A lot of people expect, you know, they walk into a sports bar and TVs are blaring 24-7, and that's the expectation. And so, like, I, what I wanted to do was just to make sure that people know that here we are, we're a space that is dedicated to showing women's sports, right? Um, but there isn't any possible way that we're able to show 24-7 content. You know, there's not, um, like, running commentary. There's not tons of replays. There's not, like, oh, the 1976 Arnold Palmer, right, you know, right. uh, classic For special or sports, whatever. For men's sports, there's just so much of it has been televised. It's a mind-numbing amount of content exactly. that you could always put in a VHS tape of Dorf on Golf. Or somebody's always talking about something. I don't know that, why that's where my brain went. That's wow. Tim Conway yeah. doing a sketch that's not even real sports. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with men's sports, there's always, like, commentary. You know, I wanted to temper expectations. I didn't want guests to come in and expect what they're used to for a regular sports bar to be what we have access to. Um, and then another thing is, like, you know, 90, 95% of all sports bars are probably streaming things that they shouldn't be. Mm. Um, and, you know, we can do that, but one, we're one entity that maybe a lot of people are watching. Mm -hmm. And right. two, super visible. Super yeah. visible. And two, like, why would I want to do that when the point 
is to kind of drive home the idea that we need more representation. We right. need more access. We need more of If you're stealing the broadcast right. of a women's sport, that's not yeah, helping then, the overall cause. And then people cause. would come in and be like, oh, there's plenty of women's sports on right. TV. Right. You know, so. This has been such a success and also just something that the community has really rallied around. Mm-hmm. Has that sunk into you? Or are you just thinking about it intellectually but not able to fully <laughs> wrap your mind around it, I guess? Uh, you know, I think it comes in waves. Um, there are moments and it's like these, the small moments that sneak in when you least expect it, you know, whether it's like 1030 and things are starting to die down and I'm having my shift drink (laughs) and, uh, and I like sit back and I watch the bartenders do what they do. I watch my servers do what they do and everybody is moving in the pieces that they should be. There's people sitting at the bar watching a game. And those quiet moments where I'm able to sit back and be like, you know, this is a space that I've always wanted. This is the space that I've always wanted to be in. And now that we're here, like I can kind of create that for other people. And, and, and it sinks in in these little moments. Um, yeah. And then, you know, there's messages and letters that I get daily that are um, very impactful and it, it's a great way to slow down and remind me of why I started to do this. The real question is, has this completely killed your ability to play rec basketball? 100%. Which, <laughs> which ironically, was a huge part of your life before this. Absolutely. And now you created this yeah. thing that makes it so you can't play basketball with your friends anymore. 100%. <laughs> so I, I signed up for a rec league like mm, right before I knew I was going to open. I was just like, okay, I'm going to commit to one hour a week. Like it'll be good for me to get physically out there and like sweat it out while all of this other stuff is happening. And immediately as soon as the doors open, I was just like, you guys got to find another point guard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, we're glad your talents are being used over at the Sports Bra. Jenny Wynn, founder of the Sports Bra right here in Portland, Oregon. That was Jenny Wynn recorded in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater back in May. If you're in the Portland area, make sure you check out The Sports Bra and tell Jenny hi from Livewire. Uh, This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, we will hear some music from Laura Veers. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, our musical guest this week is a singer-songwriter known for her inquisitive and literary lyrics. She's released a dozen albums, many of them via her own label, Raving Marching Band Records. She's also collaborated with a whole range of artists, including Sufjan Stevens, Nico Case, and also Katie Lang as part of the supergroup Case Lang Veers. Her new album is Found Light. Laura Veers joined us on stage at the Holt Center for the Performing Arts in Eugene, Oregon, back in April. Let's take a listen to that. Hi, Luke. 
Laura, it's so nice to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. How have you been? I've been all right. How have you been? We've been all right. I don't know if you heard last couple of years got a little rough. Yeah, there were a couple of things that happened. I was was, uh, reading a quote from you about this latest album. I mean, you have made a lot of records in your day, and you said that this uh, album in many ways kind of feels like your debut album. Why so? This is the first one that I have produced myself, and I produced it with a friend named Shazada Ismaili from New York. And um, my ex-husband was my producer for 20 years, and so when we broke up, I had to rediscover myself as a musician independently, and it took a little bit of searching, but I'm happy with what I found. Wow. So that's a whole new way of making your music. Yeah. Did you, uh, you know, I don't want to get you to talk about anything that you don't feel particularly comfortable with, but did you find as your own producer or co-producer that you made different decisions and that you liked some of the decisions better because now you were sort of driving that bus? Yeah, in certain ways. I mean, Tucker, my ex, is a great record producer and we made a lot of music that I'm proud of, but um, being in my own producer driver's seat, I made some decisions that I felt happy with, like only doing a couple takes and not really doing a lot of edits, just going with the raw feeling of the music and also limiting ourselves to just a few instruments per track so that the songs themselves really came to life in a way that I felt was fresh and new for me. So yeah, it was a really um, difficult experience in terms of figuring out how to parse out myself you know, from my ex and that long relationship, which was really collaborative for so many years. Also, we have kids and houses and studios and all this stuff that we had to disentangle over a long period of time. And then I had, I wanted to be really authentic in the way that I told the story of how difficult this is, because especially when you have kids, a divorce is very painful. Mm. But also the reason people do it is because it's leading you to something better. So I did want to try in my most authentic way as a writer, a songwriter, to express the depth of that situation. Well... It's, it would appear that the, that the music is, is really finding uh, an audience. The New York Times' What to Cook This Week newsletter instructed uh, its readers to listen to your new single while they're cooking this weekend. Um, <laughs> um, this is a real thing. Do you know about this? You know, someone mentioned it backstage. I had heard that it was like recommended on the New York Times playlist, but I didn't realize it was they, a specific they, it, yeah, cooking Yeah, it's playlist. What to Cook This Week. You're supposed to, people are supposed to listen to the new single and, according to the New York Times, cook cheese enchiladas. Okay, well, I should try that. <laughs> Sounds fun. Is that the song that we're going to hear? That's not one. That's like okay. a like pretty hard rocker. Okay. But it's called Winter Windows, and it's out on YouTube. I did a video. I would like self-made a video in my basement with my iPhone, and was like doing a weird, insane dancing. So hmm. it's on YouTube. You can okay. check it out. This is Laura Veers here on Livewire. <laughs> This is one of the songs off my new album. It's called My Lantern. Your poetry arc 
You give me hope you are My lantern in the dark My lantern My lantern As night stitches night With a thousand question marks Bring me peace, you are my lantern in the dark, and the whole world's blue, roving like a dead eyed shark, restless as the sea. Thank you. That was Laura Veers right here on Livewire. Her latest album, Found Light, is out now. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking to Cecily Strong from Saturday Night Live. Her memoir that she just released touches on some serious stuff, grief, relationships, COVID, uh, which might come as a bit of a surprise, considering she's also created some of the funniest, most memorable characters on SNL over the last nine seasons. She's going to tell us about having to film herself on her cell phone and make her own props so that she could create Saturday Night Live at home during the pandemic. We're going to hear how Cecily got through all of that uh, next week on the show. We're also going to talk to the Toronto rapper Shad about what it's like to be known as the nice guy of hip hop. That's a space you don't see a lot of hip-hop artists inhabiting. Well, that's kind of somewhat Shad's reputation. He's going to talk about that. Uh, we're also going to hear a song from Shad and also find out how nervous he was to meet some of the biggest hip-hop legends ever for this Netflix TV show that he's done. Plus, we're going to be looking to get your answer to our listener question. Elena, what do we ask on the Livewire listeners for next week's show? We want to know something that people would be surprised to learn about you. All right. If you... Have something surprising, something people would not expect about you that you want to share with us. You can uh, send in your answer via Twitter or Facebook. We're at Live Wire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, John Mualam, Jenny Wynn, and Laura Veers. Live Wire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. 
Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And very special thanks this week to the Holt Center of the Performing Arts. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Elena Lake of Portland, Oregon, and Heidi Spafford of Vancouver, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew, thank you for listening. And we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app, and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.